Welcome to Hanchuk Targets History. I'm your host, Tim Hanchuk. Thanks for joining me this episode. You know, I've been teaching high school history for way too many years, and I love talking about this stuff. So let me share with you some interesting, unique, and little-known historical events. I know you'll be entertained, and if you're not careful, you just might learn something too. So, let's lock and load and take a shot at that target of history and see what we can hit. Well, let's head down range and see what the target shows us. Hey, it looks like we hit on a Cold War espionage mission. Operation Ivy Bells. Oh, the Cold War. The U.S. spying on the Soviets, the Soviets spying on the U.S. Crazy times and scary times. And of course, the U.S. desperately wanted to get all the intel they could about the Soviets' ICBMs and their nuclear first strike capabilities, along with any technology concerning their subs, especially their missile subs. In 1970, the U.S. had a stroke of luck. They found out that an undersea communication cable existed between the Soviet Pacific Fleet naval base at Petroplevlovsk, which was on the Kamchatka Peninsula, and fleet headquarters at Vladivostok on the mainland. The cable ran under the Sea of Okhotsk. Now the Sea of Okhotsk is what would be considered a marginal sea along the eastern coast of Siberia. The Kamchatka Peninsula sticking out off the coast is what separates a majority of it from the Pacific Ocean, making it essentially a large bay. And here's the thing, the Soviet Union considered it to be territorial waters, meaning that entry by foreign vessels was prohibited. Of course, the Soviets were not the most trusting bunch of people, so they also placed an entire network of acoustic detection devices on the seafloor at its entrance, just in case someone decided to trespass. Okay, so the U.S. knows about this cable. So what? So, this information fell into the lap of the U.S. Office of Naval Intelligence, specifically their Undersea Warfare Director, James F. Bradley Jr. He had held this post since 1966 and had become quite brilliant at undersea espionage. It was he who led the 1968 mission that sent the USS Halibut to find and survey the downed Soviet sub K-129 in the Pacific. The Halibut had originally been built as a nuclear-powered guided missile sub, but it had been refitted in the mid-1960s to serve as a special operations platform. The Halibut's success in finding the K-129 eventually led to the CIA being able to recover the Soviet sub during Operation Azorian. So yeah, Bradley really knew his stuff and decided that tapping into this undersea cable would give the U.S. a tremendous amount of intelligence on what the Soviets were up to. He also reasoned that because the cable was in Soviet waters, it probably wouldn't be encrypted. So if they could get a tap onto it, it would be pretty easy to read. And thus was born Operation Ivy Bells. But tapping an undersea cable in Soviet territorial waters, whoa, easier said than done. Bradley had a number of problems to solve before this operation could get off the ground, 
or maybe I should say could get under the water. <laughs> Problem one was how to pay for this. This was not the kind of operation that could be listed on a budget for congressional approval or anything like that, but still had to be paid for. Bradley's solution to this problem was the classic Rob Peter to pay Paul routine. In 1970, the U.S. Navy was working on developing a deep submergence rescue vehicle, or DSRV. Bradley simply had the funds he needed diverted from that program and used them to outfit the halibut with something that looked very much like a DSRV. In reality, the thing actually was a diver lockout chamber. That's a chamber that allows divers to enter or exit a submarine when it's underwater. The one on the halibut was nicknamed the Bat Cave. Yeah, you know, I didn't know bats could swim. You know, I don't think they can. Anyway, the diver lockout chamber took Bradley to his second problem. He knew that Navy divers would have to work for several hours to attach the wiretap to the cable, and this work would have to be done at around 400 feet deep. How could divers stay at such a depth for that long to do the work? See, what we're breathing right now is about 20% oxygen and 80% nitrogen. And hey, remember, I'm not a science teacher. When the nitrogen and oxygen in our blood get compressed by water pressure, the nitrogen builds up in the blood. And this can cause a dangerous condition called nitrogen narcosis or decompression sickness if decompression is done too quickly. You've probably heard of this referred to as the bends, and it can mess you up pretty badly or even be fatal. The solution to this problem was helium. Yeah, like the stuff in balloons. Since the 1950s, Navy Captain George Bond had been experimenting with using helium to replace nitrogen in an effort to allow divers to work at deeper depths for longer periods of time. Now, I'm not even going to try to explain the science behind it. I'll just say that a helium-oxygen mix would do the trick for what Bradley wanted. And this was actually one of the first uses of what's now known as saturation diving. The third problem was a more obvious one. How to find the exact location of the cable. The Sea of Okhotsk is over 600,000 square miles. And even trying to estimate an approximate location based on where Petropavlovsk and Vladivostok are still left a huge search area. But Bradley had a brainstorm. He thought back to his childhood, growing up along the Mississippi River. He remembered that warning signs were posted along the banks telling boaters not to anchor in a particular spot due to underwater utility lines running on the river bottom. Bradley figured that if signs like that were used in America, they probably used something similar in the Soviet Union. And sure enough, when the mission took place and the shoreline was surveyed, Signs were seen warning fishermen to avoid the area where the cable was sunk. Bradley's final problem was how to actually tap into the cable. Remember, it's underwater, so piercing through the casing would cause it to short out. The solution was induction. A device was designed and fabricated to wrap around the cable without damaging the casing 
and realize we're not talking about some small handheld device here. The cable itself was five inches in diameter and the tap device was 20 feet long. It had to be large because it had to contain recording equipment and batteries to power that equipment and tapes on which to store the recordings, all in a watertight container. And just to be safe, it was automatically designed to fall off and sink if the cable should ever be raised for repairs. For the time, this was cutting edge technology. In the fall of 1971, all the pieces were in place for Operation Ivy Bells to commence. It was such a top secret mission though, that most of the sailors on the halibut didn't have the security clearance to know about it. As a result, a cover mission was created to disguise the actual mission. And the funny thing is, it was such a good cover story that it actually came true. You see, the Soviets used the Sivokotsk as a naval range for testing missiles. So the cover story was that the halibut would be searching for debris from the Soviet supersonic anti-ship missile, the SSN-12. During the course of Ivy Bells, halibut divers recovered over two million pieces of missile debris. Yeah, I said two million. So successful was the cover story that the U.S. Naval Research Laboratory used all those pieces to reverse engineer the missile and determine its guidance and performance characteristics. The tap was placed on the cable in October 1971, and every month afterwards, divers from the halibut, or eventually a sister ship as well, would swap out the recorded tapes for new ones. The tapes were delivered to the NSA, that's National Security Agency, for study and provided a wealth of information. Ivy Bells was so successful that AT&T's Bell Laboratories created a nuclear-powered tap for the Navy that was capable of storing up to a year's worth of data. Although data tapes were usually collected sooner than that, so the information would still be relevant. Throughout the 70s, the Navy sent out additional subs to monitor Soviet cables in other parts of the world. Everything was going extremely well for the next 10 years, but then disaster struck. In 1981, U.S. surveillance satellites showed a fleet of Soviet ships, including a salvage vessel, parked right over where the cable tap was. The nearest U.S. sub, the USS Parch, was quickly sent to remove the entire tap device before the Soviets could find it. But by the time they got there, it was gone. The Soviets had taken it away. How in the world did the Soviets find out about the cable being tapped? Well, it turns out that back in January of 1980, a disgruntled NSA employee named Ronald Pelton found himself deeply in debt. Consequently, he wandered into the Soviet Embassy in Washington, D.C., and sold them the secret of Ivy Bells for $35,000. Of course, the U.S. didn't find out about how the operation was compromised until 1985. In July of that year, the KGB contact whom Pelton had dealt with, Colonel Vitaly Urchenko, himself defected to the United States, and he told U.S. agents all about Pelton's espionage. 
Well, how about that for a turn of events? Pelton was promptly arrested and sent to prison. He served 29 years in the federal pen and was actually released in 2015. By the way, whatever happened to the tap device that the Soviets took? Well, if you want to see it today, head to Moscow. Since 1999, it's been on public display at the Great Patriotic War Museum, a captured artifact from that crazy intense period of history known as the Cold War. Although it was ultimately betrayed, Operation Ivy Bells was a great success. For 10 years, it provided the United States with tons of intelligence on what the Soviets' capabilities were. Sure, there were a host of other espionage missions, of course, during the Cold War. But those things would be another story. And there you have it, kind listeners. Our rather brief story is done. Thank you for tuning in. You know, if you like this episode, please tell your friends about it. And I very much look forward to talking with you again in our next episode.